Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650s, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. And church. All over Europe during the 12th century, kings and their vassals were struggling with ecclesiastical authorities over questions of jurisdiction and authority. There were frequent clashes over the right to perform coronations or to appeal to papal rather than royal courts, the right of bishops to leave the country to attend conferences, and that of kings to divorce their wives. Virtually every king in Europe had been or would be threatened with interdict, a sentence banning most church services and sacraments throughout a realm, or personal excommunication. Pope Eugene III had attempted to impose both penalties on King Stephen during a bitter argument about an appointment to the Archbishopric of York, and Frederick I, Barbarossa, the Hohenstaufen prince who had been elected Holy Roman Emperor and was the only king in Europe with more extensive territories than Henry, was excommunicated in 1160 during a war for legal supremacy with Pope Alexander III. Henry knew that his plans for governing England would not please the papacy and the church. He believed his rights as king were prejudiced by an overpowerful church, which he was determined to bring into line. Building his empire was not just a matter of expanding borders, it was about defining and deepening the rights and powers of kingship within the realm. He did not wish to seize total dominion over the church, or to rule as king and priest combined, but he had exacting notions of royal prerogatives, and he intended to defend them. On April 18th, 1161, Archbishop Theobald died in his palace in Canterbury after a long illness. He had lived past the grand old age of seventy, and had been archbishop since 1138, when Stephen had appointed him. Henry saw an opportunity. He had plans that would require a pliable archbishop in the seat of Canterbury, chief among them his aim to have his eldest son crowned as king-designate. This was something Theobald had explicitly refused to do for King Stephen. Henry also wished to begin a process of redefining the boundaries of rights held by crown and church. It suited him to have an ally as English primate. Becket struck Henry as the ideal candidate to replace Theobald. Frederick Barbarossa had used his archbishop chancellors of Mainz and Cologne to rule Germany and Italy. Henry resolved to do the same. Yet to many in the English church, including the monks of Canterbury Cathedral, who traditionally held the right to elect the archbishop, Becket's candidacy was a travesty. He was unfit for office on several grounds. He was essentially a secular figure, with a second-rate academic record. He was no lawyer, and certainly no theologian. He was a clear partisan of the crown, and had treated the Canterbury monks ungraciously during his service for Theobald. The monks were not alone in objecting. Henry's mother, the Empress Matilda, also wrote strongly to discourage him from promoting his friend to Archbishop. None of this swayed Henry. The advantages of appointing Becket as a Chancellor Archbishop far outweighed the laments that would arise from Canterbury. Henry wished to pass the Kingdom of England to his eldest son, with Becket as his mentor and regent. The boy was nearly seven years old, 
at which age it was customary for young noblemen to leave their mother's households and begin their education for manhood. In 1162 the king planned to put young Henry under Becket's tutelage, all the better that this should be in the household of an archbishop. On June the 2nd, 1161, Becket was ordained a priest. The next day he was consecrated as archbishop. In Henry's mind, Becket's elevation was a triumph, but he soon discovered that there was a major flaw in his strategy. The flaw was not the reaction from others in the church, it was Becket himself. Despite the titles and gifts lavished on him by the king, Becket felt deeply inadequate as archbishop. Part of the reason for this lay in the fact that the English primate was traditionally a monk. Becket was marked very clearly as an outsider by his pale, non-monastic dress. Having spent a lifetime learning how to be a great secular chancellor, he was now parachuted into a world where everything he stood for was despised. He was poorly educated in ecclesiastical terms and instantly disliked for his royal associations. He felt a painful need to prove himself worthy both to his new flock and to God himself. This prompted a sudden and violent change of outlook and attitude that dramatically and catastrophically reshaped his relationship with Henry. Almost as soon as he became archbishop, Becket began to distance himself from royal policy. His very first action was to resign the chancellorship, protesting that he was unfit for one office, let alone two. He then picked a fight over church lands with several lay magnates, including the Earl of Hertford and William Lord Ainsford, another Kentish landowner. He declared the day of his own consecration a new feast day, that of the Holy Trinity, and he sent a flurry of requests to Pope Alexander III, asking to strengthen the authority of Canterbury over the rival Archbishopric of York. The trusted royal agent became, almost overnight, an opponent of the crown. Henry had expected him to grease the cogs of royal policy within church ranks. Instead, he was jamming his bony fingers into them. Becket became, for the rest of his life, a pompous, disagreeable, and obstreperous distraction from Henry's every effort at smooth governance. Whatever the cause of Becket's conversion, it was remarked on with astonishment by contemporaries. The anonymous Battle Abbey chronicler unsurprisingly viewed it as a sort of glorious skin-shedding, a spiritual transformation wrought by his elevation in status. In him, as the common proverb has it, honours changed conduct but not, as with the conduct of nearly all men, for the worse, but day to day for the better. For he put off the old man who is created according to the world, and strove to put on the new man who is created according to God. Even William of Newborough, a writer generally unsympathetic to Becket, was impressed. Soon weighing up by pious and wise consideration what the burden of such a great honour might be, he was thus immediately changed in habit and manner, as one might say, This is the hand of God, and this is the transformation of the hand of the Almighty. Becket's switch from loyal crown enforcer to prickly defender of church rights had taken place with bewildering swiftness. At first Henry tolerated his friend's exasperating behaviour from afar, he was too preoccupied with Norman affairs to concentrate fully on England. But once he returned from the continent in January 1163, he was determined to push through a series of legal and governmental reforms that he thought were essential to improve law and order. The programme of reforms he introduced in 1164 is now known as the Constitutions of Clarendon, for the Royal Hunting Lodge where it was drawn up. The sixteen-point document is one of the most famous in English constitutional history, representing Henry's attempt to draw a clear line between the blurred jurisdictions of church and royal authority. This was an area of bitter dispute, but the issue on which he chose to attack was that of criminous clerks, the term used for those clergymen who stole, raped, maimed, or killed. Perhaps one in six Englishmen in the late twelfth century was technically a clergyman. While most were not and never would be priests, there were plenty in minor orders, or who had entered the church for an education and left to work for lay masters. Many parish priests were poorly educated and barely literate. 
Their lives would not have differed much from those of ordinary peasants. But clerical status bestowed great advantage if one fell foul of the law. The church demanded the right to discipline criminous clerks, but punishments were considerably lighter under canon law than under the secular criminal code. The church would neither inflict trial by ordeal, nor mutilate or execute the guilty. This allowed what was perceived by Henry to be a shameful number of crimes to go unpunished. To the king's mind, hawkish as it was about his royal rights, for criminous clerks to shelter beneath the broad cassock of the canon law was an egregious abuse, and one that he was not prepared to tolerate. To reduce a complex dispute to simple terms, Henry wanted criminous clerks tried in ecclesiastical courts to be stripped of their orders and returned to the secular powers for bodily punishment. This did not technically create a hierarchy of courts, but it would bring churchmen who committed crimes into what Henry thought was their rightful place of punishment. Becket, meanwhile, chose to resist every perceived intrusion into the church's rights, at whatever political cost. At the Council of Woodstock in the summer of 1163, Becket quarrelled with the king over the church's payment of the sheriff's aid. This was a form of taxation which was traditionally paid by landowners directly to their local sheriff to help fund his peacekeeping duties in the county. Henry now wished to draw this revenue directly into the exchequer, bringing a large source of finance under central supervision, and implicitly reminding the whole of England that it was from the wellspring of the king's direct authority that all other political power flowed. This was an accounting reform with political significance. It was probably not a wildly important issue to anyone but the sheriffs themselves, but the archbishop, cast in his new self-appointed role of scrutineer of the crown's reform programme, objected. He informed the king that, it does not become your excellence to deflect something that belongs to another to your use, and added that the realm would not be forced by law. This so infuriated Henry that he swore a great oath. According to Edward Grimm, a contemporary who wrote a biography of Becket, Henry shouted at his archbishop, By God's eyes it shall be given as revenue and entered in the royal rolls, and it is not fit that you should gainsay it for no one would oppose your men against your will. But the archbishop faced him down. By the reverence of the eyes by which you have sworn, my lord king, there shall be given from all my lands or from the property of the church not a penny. This was especially stubborn behaviour from Becket, considering that he had very little personally to lose from the sheriff's aid reform but it showed just how determined he was to prove himself in his new position and to thwart his sovereign's ambitious plans for reform. Relations between the two former friends deteriorated further over the course of the summer. The issue of criminous clerks would not disappear. Henry had heard from his advisers that in the nine years since his coronation more than one hundred murders and an untold number of other crimes had been committed by clerks who had gone unpunished by the royal courts. Although Becket tried to ward Henry off making any fundamental changes in the court's jurisdictions by banishing and branding several criminous clerks and imprisoning others for life, it was not enough to convince the king that the matter could be left as it stood. On October 1, 1163, Henry summoned the spiritual magnates of the realm to a royal council at Westminster. He addressed his audience, demanding that they obey and observe the ancient customs of the realm. A heated legal debate broke out, in which royal and canon lawyers contested for supremacy. Henry asked the bishops to recognize that a criminous clerk, once found guilty in the church courts, should be surrendered to the royal courts for bodily punishment. If they would not, then they must reveal whether or not they were prepared to abide by any of the customs of England. Led by Becket, the bishops at Woodstock answered that they would observe England's customs, saving their order, a non-answer that reserved the right to observe canon law above the law of kings. In heated mood, the king left London without notice, and with all his business unfinished and lawsuits left hanging, wrote Becket's close companion and biographer, Herbert of Bosom. The next morning Henry demanded that Becket return all the castles granted to him during his chancellorship, and removed his son from Becket's care. 
It was a spiteful gesture that tore the heart out of a decade-long friendship. Henry's view, later expressed in person in a failed rapprochement at Northampton, was that the archbishop ought to stop preaching and remember that he owed everything to royal favour. "'Were you not the son of one of my villains?' he asked Becket. "'You would hear and rely too much on the manner of your assent.' It was a piercing remark. The breach at Westminster left bad feelings on both sides. Both men appealed to Pope Alexander. The Pope, however, had more pressing troubles of his own, and was in exile from Rome. He had quarrelled with the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa, and the end result had been papal schism. An anti-Pope, Victor IV, now sat at Rome, while Alexander licked his wounds in Venice and other less grand parts of the Italian peninsula. Alexander gently urged Becket to cooperate, as later did Gilbert Folio, Bishop of London, and Roger Archbishop of York, several cardinals, and the respected Cistercian abbot Philip of Aumon. In November, according to Roger of Pontigny, the archbishop, swayed by the advice of the Lord Pope and the cardinals, and the words of this abbot and the others who came with him, agreed to submit to the king. He did so privately at Oxford. Henry summoned a great council to his hunting lodge and palace at Clarendon in late January 1164. He intended Becket's humiliation to be public and complete. Becket was uneasy and evasive, but was manipulated through a series of tantrums and dark threats from Henry into declaring before the assembled magnates, barons, officials, and bishops, that he would uphold all the laws and customs of the realm without condition. Henry then sprang a trap. Rather than accept this moral victory, he pressed home his advantage and drove for binding unambiguous supremacy. On January 29th, the constitutions of Clarendon were issued as a chirograph, a written form of law-making that implied permanence and universality. A copy was handed to Becket, a copy was kept for the king, and a third copy was filed in the royal archives for posterity. Becket was appalled. The document listed sixteen points comprising the customs to which he had apparently assented the previous day. These included Henry's desired scheme for criminous clerks, a limitation on appeals to the papacy above the king's authority, and several broad statements asserting the primacy of royal courts over church jurisdiction. Browbeaten by the king to accept royal policy, Becket had placed the church in a position of unprecedented submission, and proved himself to be what he supposed everyone must all along have thought him, a royal patsy. Tormented, Becket suspended himself from priestly duties, and denounced the snare Henry had closed around him. He wrote to the Pope, admitting what he had done, and begging absolution. He was, said Herbert of Bosom, unusually disquieted and gloomy. Great salty sobs racked his body as he bewailed his unfitness for office. His wild attempts to prove himself to his spiritual peers, to God and to himself, had come to nothing. He had wholly lost the king's good will, political support, and friendship, but he had not gained the favour of a greater lord. I clearly see myself worthy to be abandoned by God and removed from the holy seat in which I was placed, he cried. Panicking, he wrote to Henry's enemy Louis VII for support, and in the summer attempted unsuccessfully to flee to France. Henry, meanwhile, was in a vindictive mood. In the autumn he summoned Becket to a council of the magnates in Northampton Castle. On October 6, 1164, Henry's former friend was accused of embezzlement, committed during his term as Chancellor. Becket again appealed to the Pope. So did Henry. He aimed to have the Archbishop deposed, and denounced his appeal for malicious effect as being in breach of the constitutions of Clarendon. Faced with crimes against the Crown and against his own soul, Becket panicked. As judicial proceedings against him at Northampton were coming to a head, he declared that he refused to hear judgment pronounced, turned on his heel and walked out of the room. He managed to flee the castle, and the next morning, as rain lashed from a leaden sky, the disgraced and sodden archbishop tramped from town with just four men to accompany him. 
He escaped England on November 2, 1164, when a desperate and dangerous channel crossing in a small boat put him ashore in Flanders, where he set off to seek refuge with the King of France. He would not return to England for almost five years. This audiobook is continued on Disc 3. The Plantagenets by Dan Jones continued. Disc 3 Succession Planning Beckett slipped out of England in a state of dejection, which very quickly gave way to fury. He made his home on French soil, at Pontigny Abbey. Then he sat in wrathful indignation, writing letters of protest to the Pope, and complaining to anyone who would listen. He punished himself with a furious asceticism, as his companion Edward Grimm recorded. From this time, content with eating vegetables and coarser feasts and removing lighter things, he furtively withdrew certain delicacies from himself. He would also lower himself into the stream which ran between the workshops of the monastery, i.e. Pontigny, where he would remain for longer than human fragility can take. The extent of bodily torment inflicted by the extreme cold in his efforts to purge himself of the stings of desire that seemed to dwell in him was revealed by his consequent illness. He developed an abscess which festered as far as the inside of his throat and grew into an ulcer. He suffered for a long time in this agony with much trouble and sorrow until after the extraction of two teeth he eventually recovered. Letters written by Becket while he was staying at Pontigny betrayed a sense of high indignation that turned, the longer his exile lasted, into declamations of his own righteousness. He wrote long salvos against Henry II's key ministers, in particular the justiciar Richard de Lucy and Jocelyn de Balliol, principal authors of the Constitutions of Clarendon. On Whit Sunday, 1166, at Vézelay, he preached a furious sermon pronouncing sentences of excommunication against a host of his enemies in England. Yet his bark was much worse than his bite. Henry took a sporadic interest in Becket, but he was occupied constantly with a broad range of concerns across his different territories. As time passed, the affair with his archbishop became merely irksome. Henry just got on with things. He turned over the responsibilities of Chancellor, albeit not the title, to Geoffrey Rydell. The new man was pointedly given Becket's old post of Archdeacon of Canterbury. Henry continued to wage border wars against Louis and various of his own rebellious vassals. He threw himself into the conquest of Brittany, built alliances on the eastern and southern fringes of the Plantagenet dominions, from the Alps to the Norman kingdom of Sicily, coped with rebellions in Aquitaine, and pushed back French aggression around the fringes of Normandy. Despite the tirades that erupted from Becket's pen, the King of England, Duke of Normandy and Aquitaine, and Count of Anjou had better things to worry about in the late 1160s than his priggish former Chancellor eating vegetables in the backwaters of France. In September 1167, the Empress Matilda fell ill and died. She was sixty-five. During the first thirteen years of Henry's reign she had proved a source of wise advice and a useful sounding-board for policy, particularly toward the Holy Roman Empire, where she had spent her youth. On occasion she could play her part as the Grande Dame of Normandy, and she was approached with requests for counsel and mediation from the great men of Europe, including Louis VII, who acknowledged her authority in the affairs of Rouen. She had shown foresight by urging Henry not to promote Becket to Canterbury in 1162, and she was still playing stateswoman a few months before her death, attempting to reconcile her son with Louis as hostilities between the two kings mounted. Matilda died surrounded by the monks of Beck, among whom she had lived during her long retirement. The brothers sewed her body into an ox-hide and laid her to rest with lavish ceremony in recognition of the magnificent treasures she had showered upon their abbey church. Two heavy gold crowns from Germany, portable altars made from marble and silver, and her own magnificent gold-trimmed imperial cape. She died as she had lived, the daughter, wife, and mother of three magnificent kings. 
although two of her sons had predeceased her, Geoffrey in 1158, and William, who had died rather suddenly in 1164, she left grandchildren poised one day to rule over the whole of Europe. Matilda's death marked the passing of a generation. In 1168, Robert Earl of Leicester also died. His defection to Henry's side in 1153 had marked a vital moment in the struggle to take the English crown, and since 1154 he had served as co-justiciar of England. One by one the veterans of the Civil War were passing. Henry's ambitions were maturing. According to John of Salisbury, in 1168 Henry exclaimed that, Now at last he had secured the authority of his grandfather, who was king in his own land, papal legate, patriarch, emperor, and everything he wished. He had his family, his kingdom, his security. It was time to think of the future. Eleanor gave birth to her last surviving child in 1167. The boy, who was named John, brought the number of children to seven, four boys and three girls. Eleanor was forty-three at the time of John's birth. The significance of this reproductive feat was matched by her political achievement, for through these seven children Henry could begin to unfold his dynasty across Europe. His children's futures were the future of his empire, and the arrangements he made for them would shape much of the Western world for the rest of the century. The highest concern for Henry in the late 1160s was to establish a stable relationship with an increasingly belligerent Louis VII. In August 1165, the French king's third wife, Adèle of Champagne, finally produced a son, Philip. This long-awaited arrival of an heir to the house of Capet was greeted with jubilation in the streets of Paris, and a weight was lifted from Louis's shoulders. But if Philip's birth was a relief, it was also a catalyst. The French king was concerned for the future, and had grown nervous at the thought that he would hand to his son a royal inheritance sharply diminished in its territorial scope and the prestige of its lordship. He began to look for ways to discomfit the English king wherever he could. Harbouring Becket was one such move. Tit-for-tat military exchanges escalated in the border regions between their territories, and Louis had begun to encourage dissent among Henry's more troublesome subjects, the King of Scots, the Welsh princes dispossessed in 1157, and the Bretons, who squirmed under Henry's aggressive conquest of their duchy. Louis's role as a focus for opposition to Henry's continental lordship was not lost on the barons of Aquitaine, led by the Count of Angoulême and the Count of La Marche, both of whom flirted with the possibility of transferring their allegiance from the English king to the French. It was perhaps appropriate as a memorial to his mother that the year after the Empress's death Henry sent his eldest daughter Matilda to be married to Henry the Lion, Duke of Saxony and Bavaria, thereby preserving the links between the English crown and the German states. But with four brothers this Matilda was not likely to be recalled from Germany to fight for England. In Henry II's plans, that honour belonged to his eldest son and namesake. In 1162 and 1163, young Henry had already received the homage of the English barons, the Scottish king, and the princes of Wales. His father's plan to have him crowned Rex Designatus had stalled, thanks to the quarrel with Becket, because only the Archbishop of Canterbury could crown an English king. Nevertheless, King Henry made it clear that he wished the boy to grow up to rule over the entire Plantagenet patrimony, England, Normandy, and Anjou. Through a program of relentless military and diplomatic pressure that lasted the better part of a decade, Henry II had succeeded in marrying his third son Geoffrey to Constance, the only daughter of Conan IV, Duke of Brittany. He then effectively forced the Duke to abdicate, giving him the English earldom of Richmond, and in return taking control of Brittany in Geoffrey's name. When he came of age, Henry decreed, Geoffrey was to rule as Duke of Brittany, holding the duchy in feudal tenure from his eldest brother, who in turn would do homage for it to the King of France. Until the boy reached maturity, Henry would rule Brittany personally. Of the first four children, that left just Richard. Of all of Henry's children, his second son was the closest to his mother, 
and it was therefore decided that he should inherit her part of the Plantagenet Empire, the Duchy of Aquitaine and County of Poitou. Eleanor, as she neared the end of her fertile years, harboured ambitions to return to Aquitaine and rule it as the Duchess she had always been. With Richard by her side, that might be a possibility. Aquitaine's independence still mattered greatly to King Louis, because he had been deprived of its control when Eleanor married Henry in 1152. Henry proposed that Richard would hold Aquitaine directly from the French crown, loosening its connection to the rest of Henry's dominions. To sugar the pill, Henry also proposed a strategic marriage between Richard and Louis's daughter Alice, who was born in 1160. This plan was proffered to Louis at Montmirail in Maine at a conference held in January 1169. It was a generous settlement, both for Henry's sons and for Louis himself. Henry might have been an assiduous empire-builder, but he had no intention that the great dominions he controlled should remain fully connected in perpetuity. The Plantagenet realm was not an empire in the truest sense, territories to be conjoined forever and ruled as one. After Henry's death it was conceived as a federation, whose ties could be loosened or strengthened. With the partition that Henry proposed, the lasting effects of his reign would have been to unite Anjou with England and Normandy, to consolidate central power somewhat in Aquitaine, and to alter the feudal relationship between Brittany and the French crown. When Henry followed his mother to the grave, the clock would turn back to 1152. This was some way from Louis's worst fears of a perpetual empire ruled from Rouen and Westminster that could outstrip its rival in Paris. Montmirail brought a truce between the kings and offered a new picture of future feudal relations. The conference had been preceded by much wearisome warfare. Henry had sent campaigns thundering through Brittany and Aquitaine in 1167 and 1168, crushing rebellions stirred up against his lordship, he had also ravaged lands belonging to Louis' vassals on the borders of Normandy and in Perche. Even in the twelfth-century world of near-constant siege and skirmish, hostilities had dragged on too long. Montmirail might, under the right circumstances, have led to an unprecedented period of peace and concordance between the two kings. But there was one issue that could not be solved at the negotiating tables of the great French fortress. This was the case of Thomas Becket. Henry came face to face with his old friend at Montmirail for the first time since their great breach, brought together in the spirit of peace that pervaded the whole conference. Becket came to Henry under firm diplomatic pressure to apologize and resolve the damaging row that had dragged on for five years. Unfortunately, Becket showed Henry that he had in no way changed during his years in exile. Herbert of Bosom was present at the meeting, and described the scene in his biography of Becket. The archbishop was led before the kings with so great a crowd surrounding him and trying to speak to him. The archbishop immediately in the first place prostrated himself at the king's feet, but as soon as he had prostrated himself at his feet, the king immediately took hold of him and raised him up. Standing before the king, then, the archbishop began humbly and zealously to solicit royal mercy toward the church committed to him, though, as he said, an unworthy sinner. As is the custom of the just, in the beginning of his speech he found fault with himself, and attributed the church's great disturbance and harsh affliction solely to his own failings. And in the conclusion of his speech he added, Therefore, my lord, regarding the entire cause between you and me, I now submit myself to your mercy and judgment in the presence of our Lord King of France and the bishops and nobles and others present here. But to the surprise of the king, the mediators, and even his own men, he added, Saving God's honour. This was typical Becket. He had been warned at length by the mediators at Montmirail not to add such an inflammatory limiting clause to his apology. The phrase, saving our order, had been at the root of the violent arguments over the constitutions of Clarendon in the first place, and Becket was fooling no one by amending it to God's honour. As soon as he heard Becket's concluding words, Henry realised that nothing had changed. 
The king took strong offence and burned with anger toward the archbishop, throwing many insults at him, condemning him a great deal, reproaching him more, inveighing against him, accusing him of being proud and haughty, forgetful of and ungrateful for the royal bounty lavished on him, wrote Herbert of Bosom, who noted that even the French king seemed weary of Becket's intransigence, asking him, "'Lord Archbishop, do you wish to be more than a saint?' The peace conference broke up with territorial plans well made, but with the estrangement between Becket and Henry II still wholly unresolved. "'Do you wish to be more than a saint?' These were prescient words indeed. After the failure to make peace at Montmirail, Henry and Becket tried again with another botched reconciliation at Montmartre in November 1169. This time Henry would not offer the archbishop the kiss of peace. Becket subsequently threatened to lay the whole of England under interdict, and worked to gain papal backing for his threats. In the context of Henry's succession planning, he was becoming more than just a nuisance. In July 1170 Henry decided to act boldly. Crossing to England with his eldest son and a number of Norman bishops, he travelled to Westminster Abbey, and had the younger Henry anointed king, Rex Designatus, by the Archbishop of York, Roger de Pont-l'Evêque. About ten other bishops witnessed the ceremony. When Becket learned of the outrageous breach of his privileges, he was incensed. After a short period of uneasy peace, on November 30, 1170, Becket crossed to England with the intention of disciplining the bishops who had partaken in the improper coronation. He preached fire from the pulpit in Canterbury Cathedral on Christmas Day, excommunicating virtually everyone he could recall who had ever wronged him. Then he announced severe sentences against those who had taken part in Henry the Young King's coronation. Word of Becket's provocative and unrestrained activities in England reached Henry at his Christmas court in Bure in Lower Normandy. On receiving the news he uttered a phrase now among the most infamous in history. What miserable drones and traitors have I nurtured and promoted in my household, who let their lord be treated with such shameful contempt by a low-born clerk! This is often rendered incorrectly as, Will no one rid me of this troublesome priest? On December 29th, four heavily armed men smashed through a side door to Canterbury Cathedral with an axe. The Archbishop of Canterbury was waiting for them inside. They were angry. He was unarmed. They tried to arrest him. He resisted. They hacked the top of his head off and mashed his brains with their boots. The four knights who murdered Becket seemed to have believed that Henry wanted them to do so. It was a belief that spread in the shocked weeks and months following Becket's death. Henry, having recently fancied himself the greatest man in Europe and inheritor of Henry I, was suddenly a pariah. Not only the Church, but the whole of European society was outraged by the murder. It seemed likely that Pope Alexander, who refused to speak to an Englishman for a week after he received news of Becket's death, was ready to excommunicate Henry. Fortune's wheel turned sharply downward. Henry's position, built so carefully on political cunning and dynamic leadership, had exploded, thanks to a few words spoken in anger. Now, under the most intense pressure of his political career, the best that the king could do was flee. He went to a corner of his empire where it was highly unlikely anyone would follow—Ireland. Henry landed at Waterford in Ireland in October 1171. His time there proved a useful distraction, as it expanded the scope of his influence to the western limits of the British Isles, and kept him conveniently away from the European spotlight. The situation in Ireland was complex. Although Henry had been given permission to invade Ireland by Pope Adrian IV in 1155, he had never followed up the offer but latterly civil war had engulfed Ireland. The King of Leinster, Dermot MacMartha, had been deposed by a coalition of enemies under Rory O'Connor and forced into exile in England. Henry had granted Dermot permission to recruit an invasion force from among the Anglo-Norman barons, and Dermot had used their support well, regaining his throne and handsomely rewarding the barons who had helped him. 
These included Richard Fitzgilbert de Clare, the son of a former Earl of Pembroke, whose nickname, Strongbow, became famous across Europe. Diermut, Strongbow, and their allies were taking on the role of Irish colonizers and accruing to themselves the sort of autonomous power that Henry found irksome among men whom he considered his vassals and subjects. Strongbow in particular was a troubling figure. Tall, fair, and statesmanlike, he commanded respect and admiration from those, like the writer Gerald of Wales, who wrote about him. He had married Dermot's daughter Eve, and when Dermot died in May 1171, he inherited the lordship of Leinster and huge amounts of territory in southern Ireland. Henry brought with him a large army and threatening siege equipment, but this was a show of strength, not a serious attempt to throw men like Strongbow out of Ireland. Henry was satisfied by the recognition of his authority, and was pleased when all of Ireland's invading lords and a large number of the native princes submitted to him. Strongbow was stripped of his lands and titles, and then re-granted most of them as fiefs held explicitly from the English king. Lordship and the pecking order of princes was firmly established. Henry's tidy mind was satisfied. Henry spent six months in Ireland in all, reorganizing jurisdictions and establishing his rights and prerogatives as High King. And as he busied himself, the horror that had engulfed Christendom following Becket's murder began to subside. Pope Alexander III thawed sufficiently to write to Henry commending him for his efforts in Ireland. The Pope told the Irish bishops that the English king was our dearest son in Christ, who had subjugated this barbarous and uncouth race which is ignorant of divine law, and demanded that they assist him as best they could. In spring 1172, Henry was sufficiently rehabilitated to return to the continent for a reconciliatory meeting that produced a peace between the king and church, known as the Compromise of Avranches. The compromise ended Henry's painful breach with the church, it was a worldly agreement that decreed a concordat might in theory be made between church and state, while avoiding most of the bigger questions about how that could practically be achieved. Henry was obliged to drop his insistence that his English bishops observe the letter of the constitutions of Clarendon, and there were some well-meaning clauses pertaining to crusading obligations. It allowed all parties to go about their business with face saved and conflict averted. Yet to some contemporaries it seemed that Henry ought still to be punished for his harsh words over Christmas in 1170, and so it proved. Within a year of the Compromise of Avranches, divine punishment was visited on the King of England. According to the Chronicle of Battle Abbey, the Lord's martyr, or rather the Lord for his martyr, seemed to seek vengeance for the innocent blood. The punishment came from a quarter that hurt the Plantagenet King most of all his family. The Eagle's Nest The rebellion that gripped the Plantagenet lands in 1173 was, on the heels of the Becket affair, the most serious crisis Henry faced during the course of his long reign. Apparently out of nowhere Henry's wife and his three eldest sons rose in arms against the thirty-nine-year-old king. Together with a patchwork of allies that included some of the most powerful men in Christendom, the Plantagenet children raised men and garrisoned castles far and wide throughout their extensive territories. Henry, taken at first by surprise, soon realized that he faced united opposition from across Europe, galvanized by the involvement of his family. He was forced to fight on multiple fronts for more than a year as his network of territories threatened to collapse. He later likened the war to the experience of an eagle, pecked and destroyed by its own chicks. The trouble began with Henry the Young King. In early 1173, young Henry was approaching his eighteenth birthday. He was on the cusp of manhood, and married to Louis VII's daughter, Princess Margaret. Henry was tall, blonde, and good-looking, a skilled horseman with highly cultivated manners, a real fondness for the tournament, and a huge household of followers who egged on his chivalrous ambitions. He was a twice-crowned king, for his controversial coronation by Roger Archbishop of York 
had been followed in August 1172 by a second ceremony in Winchester, presided over by Rothu, Archbishop of Rouen, where his wife was crowned alongside him. On both occasions Henry had been anointed with chrism, an especially holy oil, and treated with extraordinary reverence in the company of vast numbers of knights. At one coronation banquet he had been personally served by his father. The young king revelled in his own magnificence, and was widely seen as arrogant, greedy, feckless, and glib. Despite his exalted position as his father's heir, the young king was denied the real fruits of kingship. As he approached manhood, his access to landed revenue was strictly limited. Although he had been given many titles, he was never properly invested with the lands and revenues of his ostensible dominions. He was thus heavily in debt, the result of maintaining a lavish, courtly lifestyle without the means to pay for it. And his pride was wounded. Henry II had been sixteen when the full duchy of Normandy was settled on him. At eighteen his eldest son had virtually nothing. His frustrations were fed enthusiastically by his father-in-law, Louis VII. The breach between Henry and his father was triggered by arrangements for the six-year-old John's marriage. To provide for John, Henry II gave him a wedding gift of three castles, Chinon, Loudon, and Mirbeau. These fortresses were strategically important, lying between Anjou and Maine. Chinon in particular was an important centre of Plantagenet power, a linchpin in what the young king viewed as his rightful inheritance. All were part of the power-block that young Henry felt he had been denied. Within days of the castles being granted, a furious young Henry slipped away from his father's company and rode for the court of the French king. A rebellion had begun. For Henry II to fall out with his eldest son was understandable, perhaps even inevitable. What was more surprising was that Richard, who was fifteen, and Geoffrey, fourteen, should also have joined the rebellion, riding from their mother's side at Poitiers to join Louis. The sons took up arms against their father at just the time when everywhere Christians were laying down their arms in reverence for Easter, wrote the chronicler Ralph de Disseto. Public opinion pointed to Eleanor of Aquitaine as the person responsible for stirring up her younger sons to join the revolt against her husband. Henry himself seems to have believed it, because he had the Archbishop of Rouen write a letter to his wife, reminding her of the duty to return with your sons to the husband whom you must obey, and with whom it is your duty to live. Why Eleanor turned against her husband after such a long period of quiet loyalty remains to this day something of a mystery. It has been attributed to peevishness at having been discarded by her husband for his mistress, Rosamond Clifford, a theory that has no basis at all in fact, or resentment at the influence of Henry II's mother, the Empress Matilda, ludicrous because Matilda had died six years earlier. It is likely that the Queen had a rather more substantial grievance. In 1173 Eleanor was as politically disenchanted as her eldest son. During the first fifteen years of her marriage to Henry she had been occupied with producing children. Since John's birth in 1167, that period in her life had ceased, and she had resumed her role as Duchess of Aquitaine, exercising political control over the great southern quarter of the dominions she had brought to her husband. Yet in 1173 she, like Henry the young king, found her political role undermined. Even as she acted out her part as Duchess of Aquitaine, Eleanor's independent control over her duchy was slowly being eroded. Ignoring his wife's prerogative, Henry had begun to dispose of parts of Aquitaine as he saw fit. He granted Gascony as their daughter Eleanor's dowry when she married the King of Castile. Then, when making a peace with Raymond, Count of Toulouse, he instructed the Count to pay homage to Henry the young king, who held no rights in Aquitaine. This told Eleanor that her husband had begun to see her duchy as subject to the Anglo-Norman crown, rather than as an autonomous part of a broader Plantagenet federation. Like her eldest son, Eleanor began to feel that she had been granted a hollow crown. She chose to rebel to secure her rightful control over her lands. 
Eleanor did not view Aquitaine's independence solely in the light of her own prestige. Its future independence was also a vital matter for her favorite son Richard. Under Henry's succession plan, Richard was to become Duke of Aquitaine. To that end he had been installed in 1170 as Count of Poitou, the natural first post on the way to becoming Duke. Eleanor had set up a regency council for Richard, and took a keen interest in his political development. Would Richard, when he reached eighteen, be scavenging for scraps of real authority in the duchy that Eleanor was teaching him how to govern? This would have been an intolerable situation for both of them. And so Eleanor began to contemplate a grand coalition with one man whom she would never have imagined siding with, her former husband Louis the Seventh of France. At the end of February she set out on horseback cross-country for Paris, where her three eldest sons were already ensconced with the French king. For the second time in her life Eleanor rode in mortal danger across the French countryside. The chronicler Gervaise of Canterbury tells us that Eleanor dressed in male costume as she headed from the castle of Fay la Vineuse near Poitiers in the direction of Chartres. Despite her disguise, she did not reach her destination. Eleanor was nearly fifty now, and not as vigorous as the young woman who had evaded two suitors on her flight to Henry in 1152. She was recognized and arrested by Henry's agents and taken as a prisoner to Chinon Castle. When news leaked to the chroniclers of the day that the Queen had been taken while dressed in male clothing, there was an outpouring of scandal and disbelief. Eleanor was captured early, but she had already guided her sons into the French king's arms. When Henry II discovered their treachery, he sent messengers to Paris instructing the boys to quit their foolishness. The messengers found Henry the young king in the company of Louis VII. When they asked him to return to his father, Louis VII interjected, "'Who asks?' "'The King of England,' came the reply." Not so, retorted Louis, looking at the younger Henry. The King of England is here. Both sides prepared for a long fight. Louis VII and the Plantagenet boys attracted a wide coalition of the disgruntled to join them, many enticed by ridiculous promises of enrichment from Henry the young king's realms. Louis had a special seal cut for him, and young Henry set about using it. The whole county of Kent was signed away, along with important territories in Mortain and Touraine, and thousands of pounds of revenue. With such gifts on offer, Philip Count of Flanders, Matthew Count of Boulogne, and Theobald Count of Blois took up the cause enthusiastically. In England they were supported by Robert Earl of Leicester, son of the elder Robert who had served Henry II loyally as joint justiciar until his death a few years previously. Several northern earls and the Bishop of Durham also joined the revolt, as did Henry Bigard, Earl of Norfolk. Finally the rebels recruited William the Lion, the King of Scotland since 1165, when he had succeeded his father, a man so hated by Henry II that the very mention of his name was once said to have sent Henry into spasms of rage as he thrashed about on the floor of his bedchamber, eating the straw from his mattress. William was promised all the lands that Malcolm IV had held in England during the anarchy. These gifts of land and sovereignty show how callow and limited was young Henry's real understanding of kingship. Throughout the great war that raged during the following eighteen months, Henry the young king served mainly as a puppet for Louis VII and those allies who wished to erode Plantagenet power. The first stage of the war took place during the summer of 1173. In May the rebels attacked towns in the Vexin without success. In June and July they captured Aumale and Driancourt, where Matthew of Boulogne was hit by an arrow fired from the castle walls and killed. In July Louis and Henry the Younger besieged Verneuil, but the castle held out for long enough for Henry II to arrive with relief. The rebel troops fled, and Henry's men slaughtered their rearguard as they gave chase. Meanwhile, in late June, the Scots attacked Northumbria. It was not an impressive campaign. They failed to capture the castles at Wark or Walkworth, ravaged the area around Newcastle-upon-Tyne without consequence, 
and engaged in a huge and bloody melee before the vast stone walls of Carlisle. The loyalist forces, led by the Castellan Robert de Vaux, fought with valour and courage, and seized from the Scots provisions and booty, which allowed them to withstand the subsequent siege. When news reached the Scots that a loyal army was approaching from the south under the justiciar Richard de Lucy, they melted away to cause a minor nuisance elsewhere in the border region. The rebels' strategy during 1173 was elementary and unsuccessful. They tried to open multiple fronts, dragging Henry II around and hitting him hardest when he was absent. Yet this played to Henry's greatest strength, moving at pace around his dominions, acting decisively, and deploying mercenaries with pinpoint accuracy to break resistance. He moved his troops around on punishing forced marches, at one point apparently crossing Normandy from Rouen to Dole in two days. He packed his armies with fearsome Brabanter mercenaries, costly but highly skilled, mobile and vicious. Henry wrote that he favoured them for their skills in battle, fearlessness on the attack, and ferocity exceeding that of wild beasts. Henry's energetic tactics not only cowed his less resolute enemies, but also exposed the French king as a bad general and a listless leader. This was quickly obvious, and Henry did his best to exploit it, offering his sons generous terms to lay down their arms during peace talks at Gisors. The talks were abandoned when Robert Earl of Leicester, who had joined forces with the rebels, created a scene, drawing his sword and shouting obscenities at Henry. The king still had enough opponents across his vast domains for war to extend through the summer. As hostilities continued on multiple fronts, Henry benefited from having highly competent subordinates across his lands. He had set up each of his territories under the administration of talented men who could operate the machinery of government in his absence. Unlike his sons and their allies, he had no need to bribe men to stick by his cause. Men like Richard de Lucy, the Justiciar of England, supported their king out of loyalty and the bonds of service. Despite everything, the Church supported him too. In September the focus of war moved to England, where the Earl of Leicester and another rebel baron, Hugh Bigard, hired bands of Flemish weavers turned mercenaries and attempted to ravage England. They landed in Framlingham and attempted to move northwest through East Anglia toward the Midlands. As the hired soldiers tramped through the countryside, the flat, chilly plains rang with their battle songs. No one who remembered the dark days of the anarchy could have been pleased to see Flemings back in England. At Dunwich women and children hurled rocks at the rebel army. Richard de Lucy gathered a great deal of support from the English magnates, though it was said that they were still outnumbered four to one when battle was joined in the marshland at Fornham near Bury St. Edmunds. But the Loyalists won a resounding victory, scattering the Earl's knights and leaving the mercenaries to be attacked by local people many of them drowned in the Fenland bogs. The winter was no season for warfare, and it brought the customary truces. But when spring broke in 1174, war resumed. This time the situation grew perilous in England. The King of Scots had regrouped during the winter, and his forces were swelling. The Loyalists suffered a series of defeats at Northampton, Nottingham, and Leicester, while their hold on Northumbria was uncertain. To cap it all, Philip of Flanders had sworn on a holy relic that he would undertake a full-scale invasion of England by July. After repeated pleas from the English magnates, Henry finally left the continent and sailed for England. He put to sea in July 1174 at Barfleur, with a vast army of Brabanter mercenaries and members of his immediate family, the young king's wife Queen Margaret and his children Joanna and John. He also took with him a number of captives, including his own wife. Conditions at sea were wild, with a rough wind and violent waves. When his sailors expressed concern, Henry stood before his entire crew and told them that if God wished him to be restored to his kingdom, he would deliver them safely to port. God's will was at the top of Henry's mind. He arrived in Southampton with one object before he engaged in battle. It was perhaps the masterstroke of his entire campaign. 
rather than head directly for East Anglia, where Philip of Flanders was mustering his forces, Henry made for Canterbury. Henry could be a stubborn man, but he was usually sensitive to others' perception of him. He knew that many people thought the Lord had rained rebellion and discord upon him in revenge for Becket's death. He also realized that while rebellion was tangled up with the cause of the blessed martyr Thomas, there could be no hope of peace. Three days after his landing, Henry arrived in Canterbury determined to put on a show. Ralph de Disseto described the scene. When he reached Canterbury, he leapt off his horse, and putting aside his royal dignity, he assumed the appearance of a pilgrim, a penitent, a supplicant, and on Friday the 12th of July went to the cathedral. There, with streaming tears, groans, and sighs, he made his way to the glorious martyr's tomb. Prostrating himself with his arms outstretched, he remained there a long time in prayer. With the Bishop of London looking on, Henry protested with God as his witness that he had not intended Becket's death, but acknowledged that by his rash words he had inadvertently caused it. Disseto continued, He asked for absolution from the bishops then present, and subjected his flesh to harsh discipline from cuts with rods, receiving three or even five strokes from each of the monks in turn, of whom a large number had gathered. He spent the rest of the day and also the whole of the following night in bitterness of soul, given over to prayer and sleeplessness, and continuing his fast for three days. There is no doubt that he had by now placated the martyr. Indeed he had. With this extraordinary show of public penance, Henry had won the most important propaganda battle of